Hello, thank you for joining us today for the Harvest Time Church weekly podcast. As you listen today, we pray that you are richly blessed and that the message would guide you deeper into your walk with Jesus and help you to advance his kingdom here on earth. Have a blessed day. All right, this morning as they are released, we have a special speaker this morning, but he is not a uh, new to the house So I'm going to go ahead and invite Robert Vargas up this morning. He is one of our new active elders in the house. You ready? He says he thinks so. Your your mic's on. I won't leave you till you're 100% ready. So I want to tell you a few things before we start sharing. He is operating under my authority. So you say, hey, well, Pastor No, when you preach, I like that. Well, he is operating under my authority this morning. So when he says something good, help him out. Say amen. Get excited. Receive the word just like it's coming from me. I'll get up. I'll start walking through the crowd. Say, hey, come on. That's some good preaching. I'll bust you up from the pew, right? But let me pray over him, and we're going to release him to share all the things that God has put in his heart, okay? Stretch out your hand for me. Father, I thank you for Robert and the giftings and callings that you have within them. Father, Lord, I I don't know how confident he feels, but Lord, I pray that you would activate the gift within him this morning to be led by your spirit, to communicate what needs to be communicated, Lord, and even maybe what should not be communicated. Father, we just submit him to you. Father, I pray that this morning he'd be bold and courageous, and Father, that you would just use him mightily. Pray for peace, pray for comfort, and that he would find even in this moment it being easy because he's relying on you. Yes, Lord. I bless him. Amen. Thank you, brother. This thing on? Y'all hear me? All right. Good. Wow. Never thought I'd be up here preaching to you guys. Um, yeah, so last week, uh, Pastor Noe had a really good question. Um, about trust, trust issues. How many people have trust issues? Yeah, lots of hands going up. Um, a lot of things go against us when we talk about trust, right? That influence us. You know, you got social media, the news, uh, political media. Um, They all kind of cloud our judgment, right? And they always make us ask, what if this, what if that, right? So what we're going to talk about today is going to boost your confidence in God and who he is and why you can trust him with every aspect of your life. So let's talk about the object of your faith. So have you ever dealt with the what-ifs? Entertaining the what-ifs in your life is the first step to being overtaken with worry. A good way to define worry is to torment oneself or, uh, with or suffer from disturbing thoughts or to interfere with, that interfere with your peace of mind. And if we keep entertaining these thoughts... Like it becomes worse, right? It becomes like, start having anxieties about things. 
A more severe case is what we call anxiety, which is more intense, it's excessive and persistent worry, and a fear of everyday situations. But who is causing us to play this what-if game in our minds? Well, it's us. We do it to ourselves, right? So when you worry, it's kind of like trying to take responsibility for things that you were never intended to handle. What worry really demonstrates is a lack of trust in your creator. Worry says that you can handle it when many times you can't. So how do you defeat worry? Well, you don't worry about worrying, right? (laughs) You don't do that. You defeat worry by redirecting your concerns to someone that can actually do something about your situation. It doesn't mean that you don't take responsibility for the things that you're supposed to handle. It just means that you know when you stop and when God begins. So if you're honest, like any follower of Jesus, right? There are times when you might find yourself questioning whether or not you can truly trust God to handle your life situations. In fact, as we sit here in church today, you might find yourself really struggling in your faith. You wonder whether you can trust God to handle the situation you're facing or whether what you ask for him in your prayer time would even be given. Or perhaps you're just facing a crisis of your faith. So whatever your situation, consider this truth. I think I hit the button too early. The strength of your faith is directly related to the trustworthiness of the object of your faith. So let's think about that for a moment. If you don't believe that a particular object is trustworthy, your faith in that object is compromised, right? So for example, if someone is known to be unable to hold a confidence like a secret, you're unlikely to trust that person with highly personal or otherwise confidential information. Because they aren't trustworthy, you can't really put your faith in them to hold a confidence. Or on a more practical level, let's say you're going to take a trip and you need to find a hotel. We went on a trip. We went to Yellowstone. We just got back a couple of weeks ago. It was very nice. I highly encourage you to go to Yellowstone. Um, So as you search for the perfect place to stay, there's things to consider, right? You look at budget. You look at the size of the room that you're trying to get. You look at the location of the hotel. The other factor is the way it's rated, right? So, sometimes what really, um, sorry, I lost my place here. So what happens, I'm sorry, when you consider all these options about how much it's going to cost you and where it is and all that stuff, then you go more towards what the ratings say, right? If you, say that, if you say that everybody has, gives us one hotel, five stars, well, then we're more likely to go that way versus the one that's got a one or two star rating because even though maybe this one's in your budget, but this one's a lot nicer, so you're going to go that way. But then you get to the hotel and you figure out, man, it's not what they said it was. 
It just wasn't there. So you go by what other people said, what, you know, how they rated it. It ended up being not, not what you expected. The strength of your faith is directly related to the trustworthiness of the object of your faith. The trustworthiness of someone is ultimately rooted in their character. And with God, he is holy and completely unlike anyone else. Because his character is perfect, as John tells us in 1 John 1, 5, God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. What does that mean? Is it, there's no blemishes, right? There's no imperfections. There's no deficiencies in God. He is perfect in every way. Let's look at Isaiah 55. Chapter 2, verse 8. He says, verse 8 and 9. He says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. We're told here that his ways are not our ways. Why does God tell us this about his character? What's he trying to say here? He is saying that he is not like our earthly counterparts who are not trustworthy. The earthly counterparts are us. We fail each other. We disappoint each other. God is in a class all to himself. He is on his own highest level, right? But unfortunately, we overlay on God that lack of trust because we tend to compare him to our known experiences and relationships. And our experience teaches us not to fully trust. But how many of you know that God is fully trustworthy? He won't fail you. Because he can't fail you. I know that all, we already kind of know that to some degree. But let's look at how God's perfect character makes him fully trustworthy. And how understanding and knowing the perfection of his character will make your faith stronger. Exodus 14, 14. The Lord will fight for you. You only need to be still. What's happening in this in this time, the Hebrews were up, up against the, the Red Sea. And guess who's behind them, right? Pharaoh, his army, the chariots. They're, they got them cornered. The Hebrews were in a panic. They thought that this was going to be their last days. What did Moses have to do? Can you imagine having to address thousands and thousands of people? And tell them, hey, everybody, calm down. It's going to be okay. The Lord will fight for you. You only need to be still. He had to reassure his people, telling them not to be afraid, to stand firm, and believe that they would be delivered from the hand of Pharaoh. Joshua 21.45. Not one of the Lord's good promises to Israel failed. Everyone was fulfilled. What was happening here? God had promised Joshua 
what he had promised to Moses. That the nation of Israel would take over every territory from the Jordan River to the deserts of Lebanon to the Euphrates River and to the, all the Hittite country, all the way to the Mediterranean Sea. In other words, he was going to give him the promised land. And in that promised land, divide up all the land against, amongst the 12 tribes of Israel. No nation would be able to stand against the nation of Israel. And that God was going to be with Moses. The way he was with Moses, he was going to be with Joshua as well. He would never leave him or forsake him. He said, be strong and courageous because you will inherit the land he swore to their ancestors. God promised that to those people. Joshua 23, 9. But you are to hold fast to the Lord your God as you have until now. Joshua was nearing his last days. He gathered all the elders and the leaders and the judges and the officials to remind them of all they had accomplished with God as the cornerstone of their nation and their military forces and to enforce the importance of keeping his commands. The Lord God had driven out great and powerful nations from their promised land, and no nation was able to withstand them, the nation of Israel. God was with them and fighting for them, just as it was promised. And I think the most important piece of advice that Joshua gave, it says in verse 11, be very careful to love the Lord your God, to love him. So let's talk about Love, perfect love. What other characteristic uh, makes God trustworthy is, is that, perfect love. Knowing that God is perfect in every way, we must consider that he, he loves us perfectly also. When someone knows that they are truly loved by someone, you don't fear the motives or genuine nature of that love, of the love of that person, Right? You trust that that love to have the best interests at heart for you. Perfect love also has an additional quality, that it drives out all the fear. It banishes fear from the relationship. To begin to understand that kind of love, you need to understand the character of God's love. And that means understanding that God doesn't just love, he is love. He is love. This is something... We discussed this past semester of life groups when we studied the books of First uh, and Second and Third John. And let me encourage you: if you haven't made it a point to join a life group, then I strongly encourage you to do so. Life groups is a great way to grow in your relationship with Christ, and it will help you move closer towards God's given purpose for your life. Okay. So in First John four eight tells us God is love. Verses 8 through 10. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. This is how God showed his love among, among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. And in verse 16 
And so we know. And so we know and rely on the love of God that he has for us. For God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in him. The structure in the Greek is emphatic that God is the essence of love. It's an intrinsic part of God's character that defines who God is. Without love, God would cease to be God. It's like saying the sun is hot. The sun cannot not be hot, right? The sun is defined by this characteristic of heat. It's intrinsic to what it is. It is the source of heat. Heat is what makes the sun the sun. So is love with God. Love is an inextricable part of his character that defines who he is. He is the source of love. And for him to be unloving would mean that he would cease to be God. And because God is everlasting and unfailing, his love is everlasting and unfailing. God's perfect love endures for eternity. It never, ever ceases. God's perfect love is reflected in the fact that he is the one who comes to our aid when there's no way forward. He is the one who protects and fights and graces us with every good gift. So when you get home today, I want you to check out Psalms 136, which will confirm this for you. You didn't know you were going to have homework, did you? <laughs> Psalms 136. Read it. God manifests his love for us in so many ways, but the chief among those ways is that it drove him to give us his son. Sadly, it has become such a common thing among Christians that we have lost the awe and the wonder of this reality. As Paul tells us in Romans 5, God demonstrates his own love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And Jesus tells us in John 3.16, probably the most widely known verse in the Bible, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. John goes on to say in 1 John, in 1 John 3.16, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. If that's not a display of perfect love, I don't know what is. How many of us could do that? To give my only begotten son for somebody else's sin. I don't know. That's tough. It's like, it's not even a question. But like, no. <laughs> I'm not giving up my son, right? But God did that for us. The thought of our eternal damnation because of sin and death was so unbearable to God because his perfect love for us that the word put on flesh. How many of you know that the word was, is Jesus, right? The word put on flesh and became obedient to death, ultimately being murdered in the most excruciating and, and, and humiliating way thinkable. Why? First John 3, 1 says, see how great a love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God, and that's what we are. We're children of God, people. 
Somebody declare that. I'm a child of God. Say it. Know that. Deep rooted inside you. 1 John 4, 9. This is how God showed his love among us. That he sent his only son into the world that we might live through him. Yes, the love of the all-powerful, eternal, pure, and holy God toward you is so all-consuming that it drove him to the ultimate sacrifice so that he could make you, so he could take you from death to life and from darkness to light and make you his very own child. That's how much he loves you. It's a radical, all-consuming love that can't be shaken or it can't be, and it can't be quenched and it will go to whatever lengths necessary to rescue you and redeem you. Praise God for that. So God is perfect love. And as a perfect, unblemished love, it by design casts out all fear, all questioning, all doubts. It's a love that is so pure and so intense, it manifests in everything God does. John also says in 1 John 4, 7, that love comes from God. That's a powerful thought because it means that any love found in the universe emanates from him. Wherever love exists, it bears witness to the existence and character of God. This is a far cry from the lie from the pit of hell that God is vengeful and a wrath-filled, right? Today, regardless of what you might be facing, remember that God loves you with perfect, unblemished, and unfailing love. It can't be any greater or any less. It can never be quenched. And he has proven the depth of that love by giving everything to you. It's a love that you can fully trust. God is perfectly good. Each of us can think of someone in our life that we would consider to be a really good person, right? It might be a parent or a spouse or a close friend or any combination of those. And when we think of someone who is good, we certainly assign trustworthiness to that person. But no one is truly inherently good, right? Because we're human. And each of us proves our fallibility every time we falter. Paul reminds us in Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But God is perfectly good. In fact, he is the only one who can be defined as truly good, which is the point Jesus tries to make in Luke 18.19. In this passage, a highly influential and wealthy Jewish leader approaches Jesus and addresses him as good teacher and asks him, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And what does Jesus do? He rebukes him. And he says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Jesus' point is that no one is intrinsically good. No one but God. And if Jesus is saying it, you better believe it. This is such an important truth to understand. Our idea of goodness is formed by our experience because the only goodness we have experienced is limited and, inc and inconsistent. And we have all experienced someone that we thought was good, was a good person, 
and that they did something that was far from good. But someone who is perfectly good can do no evil, which means everything God does is for our benefit and not his. God is the essence of good, not mostly good or usually good, but always truly and inviolately good. John affirms this in 1 John 1, 5 when he declares, this is the message we have heard from, the, from him to, and declare to you, that God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. That's no darkness. That's zero. No potential for evil. He is perfectly and inherently good, and he is incapable of being anything other than that. This is critical to understand because God's motivations always come from that goodness. Everything God does in your life flows from the fact that he is good. He's perfectly good. That's why the psalmist David writes in Psalm 34, 8. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. You can totally trust God today because he is perfectly good and that goodness is what animates his every thought of you. That's why his goodness is a powerful refuge for you from whatever challenges or disappointments and hurts and difficulties you might face. In that refuge of eternal and unchanging goodness, you will find the joy and blessings you so desperately want. Trust him for that. When you get home today, I encourage you to read all of Psalm 34. There's more homework. Let's talk about his perfect wisdom. One of the most valuable things in life is wisdom. you agree with that? When we find ourselves in a bind or facing tough decisions, there's nothing like having someone that you can turn to who can provide wise counsel and to help guide us in the right direction. Imagine if that perf person was perfectly wise, that no matter what you faced, he or she could give you the perfect guidance and would always lead you in the right direction. Well, that's our God. God is the very fountain of wisdom, born out of his perfect knowledge and perfect understanding. He is the only one who can be called truly wise. In Romans 11, 36, or 33 through 36, it says, Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind, who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To, to him be the glory forever. Amen. Paul reaffirms this truth that God's wisdom is so deep that his judgments and his ways are, are so beyond our comprehension that there is no way that we can possibly understand or grasp the measure or extent of God's wisdom. To make his point, Paul also quotes from Isaiah 40 and Job 40 through 42 to remind us that no one has ever counseled God or known what is in his mind. Because you can't know the unknowable 
and you can't give counsel to an all-knowing, all-wise God from whom are all things and through whom and for whom are all things. God alone has true and perfect wisdom. Now imagine that perfect wisdom matched up with his perfect love for you. That's an unbeatable combination. A God who loves you perfectly is ready to guide you with his perfect wisdom if you will trust him for that. But that doesn't mean he will necessarily do what you want or take you where you want to be. What it means is that he's going to, you can trust him to take you where you need to be. In God's perfect knowledge, understanding, and wisdom, he and he alone knows what is best for you and where to guide you so that you can experience your perfect destiny. And he's ready to download that wisdom no matter what you are facing if you only ask and then trust that what he reveals to you is what's right for you. James understood this truth even in tough circumstances, which is why he penned the words in 1 James 2.8. He says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may mature and complete and not lack anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God. What do you need? What do you need to do if you lack wisdom? Ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. But when he asks, he must believe and not doubt. Because he who doubts is like a wave in the sea, blown and tossed around by the wind. That man should not think he will receive anything from the Lord, for he is double-minded man, unstable in all he does. Let's talk about Jesus's, or God's holiness. The one attribute that God alone possesses is holiness. No other being is intrinsically holy. Holy is being completely and fully set apart from sin and from any other being. That means he's pure and undefiled. Twice in scripture, the declaration of holy, holy, holy is proclaimed in Revelation 4.8 and in Isaiah 6 verses 2 through 3. In Revelation, it says, Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under his wings. Day and night, they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. In Isaiah Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying, and they were calling to one another. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. In both instances, the scene is set in heaven, in the presence of God Almighty with angels declaring the truth with a trifecta of holy, 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 expressing that God is thoroughly and perfectly holy. 
One of the most important qualities of holiness is that, it, is that of being completely and totally set apart and unlike any other. Which means all others are imperfect where God is perfect. Thus, he is sinless and perfectly pure. Just like affirming God's perfect goodness in 1 John 1, 5 affirms the truth of God's perfect holiness when he declares that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. As such, God can do no evil. It's impossible. The fact that God is entirely other and unlike anything or anyone else creates a problem for us when it comes to trusting him because our only points of reference are people we have trusted before. And this imperfect and broken world that is so blemished and therefore so untrustworthy. As a result, we're skeptical at best in trusting almost anything or anyone because we have fallen victim to the pain of trusting what is untrustworthy because it is marred by sin and inherently self-serving. Perhaps you struggle to trust God because of the disappointment you have personally experienced in trusting others. The wound is deep and unrelenting in pain, in the pain you've suffered. And as a result, you find it hard to trust God. God's perfect holiness means God is completely different from any other person. And God is perfectly holy. He is perfectly trustworthy. Whatever he does or doesn't do emanates from the, his perfect holiness. So it's impossible for him to behave in any other way than with true purity. So God, so trust God today, knowing that he is completely different from anyone you've ever trusted before. He is perfectly holy, perfectly pure, and therefore perfectly trustworthy. He's also perfectly faithful. One of the great disappointments in life is when you truly believe that you can trust someone only to find out that they are in fact untrustworthy. The faithful friend that you thought you had ended up not being really that faithful at all. Perhaps you've experienced this disappointment with a business partner or with someone you were dating or worse, maybe your spouse. The one person that you thought you could trust in the end proved unfaithful and it hurts. It makes you never wanna trust anyone again because you never wanna feel that pain. You don't want to get burned anymore. Gratefully, with God, you have someone who is perfectly faithful. 2 Timothy 2.13 says, He can never be unfaithful to you. Why? Because to be unfaithful to you would mean that he would be disowning himself. And how would God be disowning himself if he was unfaithful to you? Let's look at 1 Corinthians 12, 27. Paul tells us this simple truth. Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is part of it. And in 1 Corinthians 6, 15, we're told, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? So if you're a follower of Christ, then you are part of the body of Christ. And if Christ is unfaithful to you, he would be unfaithful to himself, which means he would disown himself, which he can't do, right? 
Just think about it. God won't ever turn his back on you because he can't. Otherwise, he would be denying himself. That's why we believe the psalm, what the psalmist says in Psalm 33, 4. For the word of the Lord is right and true. He is faithful in all he does. He isn't faithful when he feels like it or based on you, how you behave or because of any other reason or criteria. He is faithful because he is perfect, because of his perfect character that is right and true. That's why he is faithful in all he does, not just some of what he does. There's great comfort in that, especially when you go through difficult times. God's faithfulness doesn't mean you'll be shielded from tough times or heartbreaks. You live in a broken world and it's under the curse, right? There are forces at work that do all they can to destroy your faith. 1 Peter 5, verses 8 and 9 reminds us that Satan is actively working to do just that. It says, be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. Notice that the way to defeat Satan and to overcome the darkness arrayed against you is to do what? Stand firm in your faith. How do you defeat Satan and all the darkness arrayed against you? Come on. Stand firm in your faith. Trusting God's perfect faithfulness will thwart off the will of Satan and render him impotent and ineffective in your life. So somebody praise God for his faithfulness. Amen. The song set list today was very fitting. Thank you, Jessica, for putting that together. Every song we sung had something to do with this message. God works in amazing, mysterious ways. God is perfectly righteous. Psalm 119, 142. Your righteousness is everlasting and your law is true. According to the Merriam-Webster Dictionary, it defines righteous as behaving or acting in accord with divine or moral law, free from guilt or sin. Simply stated is to do what is right based on an absolute moral standard. And God always does that. But in today's culture, the big question is, well, what's right? The truth is no longer an absolute standard as the moral relativity of our day means that the idea of right and wrong is left up to the individual to decide. You hear things like, well, your truth is your truth and my truth is my truth. In fact, to believe in truth as an absolute standard as seen is seen by many as intolerant and bigoted. So the very notion of truth, of right and wrong, is subject to what the individual believes and not the moral standard. The problem with such a view is that it is morally bankrupt. First, to say that there is no absolute truth is to make an absolute statement. So such a view is self-denying to begin with. Second, 
If you truly believe that there is no moral absolute, then there is no ground of moral authority to say, well, that's wrong, you shouldn't be doing that. If truth is left up to the individual, then anything can be judged to be right or wrong in the moment, which makes the idea of you telling me that I'm doing something wrong is literally impossible. The result is we have a culture that is morally compromised where truth is both elusive and confusing. Where attacking others based on personal beliefs and values is justified because it's based on my truth or what your truth is. And where lying and misleading others to gain a personal advantageous outcome is justified. The prophet Isaiah spoke to a culture much like ours today. In Isaiah 59, verses 9 through 11, he says, So justice is far from us, and righteousness does not reach us. We look for light, but all is darkness. Brightness, we look for brightness, but we walk in deep shadows. Like the blind, we grope along the wall, feeling our way like people without eyes. At midday, we stumble as if it were twilight. Among the strong, we are like the dead. We all growl like bears and we moan mournfully like doves. We look for justice but find none, for deliverance is but far away. Also in uh, verses 14 and 15, he says, So justice is driven back and righteousness stands at a distance. Truth has stumbled in the streets. Honesty cannot enter. Truth is nowhere to be found. And, wherever sh- and, wh- and whoever shuns evil becomes prey. Yep, our world is swallowed up in lies and truth, immoral behavior, and untrustworthy relationships as, a, as the moral center of, of gravity erodes away. The result is willingness to compromise the truth or what is right for personal advantage regardless of impact on others. And my guess is that you have been the victim of unrighteous behavior at some point. And that's going to erode your trust in others. And it's going to make you question, even subconsciously, whether you can trust God or not. Let me reassure you that this moral equivocating is not so with God. He, God, is truth. Recall the words of Jesus in John fourteen six. He says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus didn't claim to be a truth or to even speak the truth. He made it clear that he is the truth. In him, you find the absolute standard of morality, a standard that never varies. It is firm, it's fixed, it's unequivocating. And the truth is literally impossible for him to do anything but what is right. He is perfectly righteous and he will always do what is right by you and for you because he can't do anything else. You can trust God fully because God is the truth and absolutely righteous. He will not change. In Numbers 23:19 it states God is not human that he should lie. God is not a human being that he should change his mind. 
Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? Because God is completely and holy and perfectly righteous, you can trust him to never equivocate on that and what he says. It is firm, fixed for eternity, grounded in his very character. So no matter what you've experienced, whatever wrong you've suffered because of being misled or lied to by others, you can be assured that God will, ne- will only do whatever is right by you. And that's something that you can perfectly trust. God is also perfectly just. How many of you have ever heard your kids say, that's just not fair? Or how many of you have ever said it yourselves? Right? Everybody. There's three common words to every child, and no doubt every one of us has either thought it or said it. From the very earliest years, we have built into us a sense of justice or fairness. We all have experienced the pain of injustice in our lives. For some, it's being wronged in ways that have shattered your life. But for most of us, it's been a point in time when, we can, when we've been treated unfairly. I don't know what you've been through, but experiencing injustice can cause you to lose your faith in both people and institutions. Perhaps you've been falsely accused or unjustly punished, or you've been treated unfairly. Life is filled with injustice, both small and insignificant and significant. And it can, in fact, undermine your trust in people and institutions. The good news is that justice is a non-negotiable with God. We are told in Psalm eleven seven that the Lord loves justice. And in Psalm eighty nine fourteen, we are told that it is the very foundation of his rule and authority. Our God is perfectly just. As Second Chronicles nineteen seven says, For the Lord our God, for with the Lord our God there is no injustice, none. He's never unfair. You will never get punished for something you didn't do, and you will always get what is rightfully yours. In an article uh, for Relevant Magazine, there's a writer named Tim, Tim Keller. He notes not only how important justice is to God, but what it really means. There's a Hebrew word for, inju- for justice, and it means mishpat, or it, it's pronounced mishpat. And it occurs in its various forms more than 200 times in the Old Hebrew Testament. Its most basic meaning is to treat people, treat people equitably or equally. It means acquitting or punishing every person on the merits of the case, regardless of race or social status. Anyone who does the same wrong should be given the same penalty. But mishpat means more than just the punishment of wrongdoing. It also means giving people their rights. Deuteronomy 18 directs that the priests of the tabernacle should be supported by a certain percentage of the people's income. This support is described as the priest's mishpat, which means they're getting what they're due or what's rightfully theirs. Mishpat, then, is giving people what they are due, whether punishment or protection or care. With God, you will always be dealt with justly. In fact, he will go to the ultimate lengths to ensure justice is served. Think about this. Because justice 
is a non-negotiable with God, he sent his son, Jesus, to pay the ultimate price for your sin. Otherwise, God's justice would demand eternal damnation because of your sin. Instead, Jesus, uh, justice has been fully satisfied through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And by placing your faith in Jesus, you have been justified before God, fully and forever. That's why Paul could pen these words in Romans 8, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. Jesus has taken the full weight of condemnation for your sin, so you are fully justified in him. But God's justice goes beyond that. His being perfectly just means he will never treat you unfairly as you travel through this life. He will never wrong you. Yes, you will suffer the injustice of the broken world, but you can always trust God's fair and just treatment of you today and for eternity, and you can rest in that. God gives us perfect peace. As humans, it seems like one of our natural states of being is to live in the grip of fear and anxiety. And in today's world, stress, anxiety, and fear aren't in short supply. The daily headlines dish out a nonstop serving of bad news, of seemingly unending turmoil that creates a constant unsettledness. And the stress of modern day life often results in anxiety-filled days that rob us of the peace that God intends for us. That's why the one thing in life that seems elusive is often a sense of ongoing peace, an authentic and deep-seated peace. In fact, if you're honest with yourself, I'm confident there's something that you're struggling with right now that is keeping you from experiencing what you long for. And that's the calmness and serenity of a heart at peace. So make no mistake, the natural bent of life is to be filled with anxiety, fear, and worry. Our stress-filled, deeply broken world serves up a daily dose of things that thrive on stealing the peace that God intends for our lives. John 14, 27 says, Peace I leave you, my peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Don't let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. It's no wonder that in the, in the, in the just an hours just before his departure from this earth, he told his disciples that he was going to leave them with his peace. Not a false peace like the world serves up, but the real deal. Why? Because he knew that they were going to need it. And he knew that you and I are going to need it. And if there's one person that can deliver on that promise, it's Jesus. After all, he is the Prince of Peace. Isaiah declares that in, verse, uh, in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. For unto us, let me click it. There we are. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, 
and Prince of Peace. Of all the titles that Jesus could have been given, it's instructive that the one is the Prince of Peace. Simply stated, Jesus is the one who ultimately rules over peace. In fact, he is the only one who can deliver perfect peace. Later in the book of Isaiah, the prophet declares this promise. You will keep in perfect peace those whose minds are steadfast because they trust in you. That's Isaiah 26, verse 3. So let's read that verse again. You will keep in perfect peace those whose minds are steadfast because they trust in you. Did you see the key to attaining the perfect peace? It's found in trusting God. And as you entrust yourself to him, you can gain a steadfast mind. Paul echoes this truth in Philippians 4, verse 6 and 7, where he commands us, Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God will transcend, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So how do you deal with fear and anxiety? With thanksgiving. You gotta lay it all at the feet of Jesus. If you truly release your anxieties, worries, and fears to Jesus, you will be given God's peace. And that will act to guard your heart and your mind. Notice that Paul warns us that this peace, it will transcend all of your understanding. In other words, it won't make sense. And the evil one will want to steal that peace from you by making you believe that it's not right for you to have that kind of peace considering what you're facing. Don't fall for that lie. Jesus wants to give you a perfect sense of peace that the world just can't understand. If you truly put into his trust the fear and anxiety you're struggling with today. Perfect power. God is almighty, perfectly powerful. Over the course of this message, we've seen that God is absolutely perfect. He is perfect in love, perfectly holy, perfectly righteous, perfectly just, perfectly wise, perfectly good, perfectly faithful, and the very source of perfect peace. And because he is perfect and without flaw, you can trust him implicitly to without fail be wise, good, faithful, righteous, just, holy, the provider of true peace, and always driven by an infinite and perfect love for you. And these final thoughts, I want to highlight God's perfect power. This unmatched power is what ensures his sovereign rule over everything and his ability to deliver on his promise to care for you, something you can therefore trust without hesitation. Jesus went out of his way to try and convince us of God's passionate desire to care for each of us. This loving care was expressed in Matthew 6, 25, verse, uh, through 34.
It says, do not worry. Therefore, I tell you, Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more important than food and the body more important than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Aren't you much more valuable than they are? Who of you, by worry, can add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the lilies of the field grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow and then thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Notice that tucked away in the midst of this teaching Jesus calls us out for who we are, people of little faith. Why? He desperately wants you and I to trust him, and that trust is rooted in his perfect and infinite power. Because if God is not truly sovereign, there is somehow a if there is somehow a force equal to or greater than his power, then at some point God could fail to deliver his promise to care for you. And his admonition to fully trust him would be hollow. After all, God is perfectly good, but his goodness towards you could be thwarted somehow. Then being perfectly good doesn't really matter. The perfection of God's character only has potency to the degree that God is indeed sovereign, perfect in power, which he is. In, verses, uh, in Ephesians 1, 18-23, it expresses the true nature of God's power. It is an incomparably great power. Nothing can compare to it. Nothing. Let's look at that. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance of the saints, and that his incomparably great power for us who believe, that God is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand of the heavenly realms. Far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but in, in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything 
in every way. Satan might be powerful, but compared to God's power, it is incomparably less. Jesus is far above all rule and authority, power and dominion. Nothing can compare to his power. Nothing. The Bible expresses this truth in so many ways. For example, Hebrews 1.3. It states, The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. Think about that for a moment. All things are sustained by the power of his word. Then in 2 Corinthians 4, 7, it tells us, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. God's power is all-surpassing. It supersedes every power in the universe. It cannot be thwarted by any other power. But it can be blocked from your life by something else. Who knows what that is? It's your lack of faith and your unwillingness to trust him. In Hebrews eleven six, 6, it reminds us, and without faith it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. If you read further in this chapter of Hebrews, the writer recounts dozens of those who have gone before us and demonstrated how through faith they accomplished such great things. Your faith and trust in God are the key to living a truly abundant life because it is through faith and faith alone that the indwelling spirit of Christ lives fully through you. In Galatians 2.20, Paul profoundly states, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life that I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. This truth that Christ is alive in you is what Paul calls a mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations in Colossians 1.26. It is the most radical of thoughts that God would be alive in you. Right now, in this very moment, God is alive in you. Right now, in this very moment. Say it again. God is alive in you right now and in this very moment. And the natural bent of the indwelling spirit is to empower you and to live through you. That's not something that you need to beg for, people. You don't have to beg for that. This is why we are admonished not to quench the spirit in 1 Thessalonians 5.19 or to grieve him in Ephesians 4.30. You know that you can quench the power of God to work in your life. You can stop it simply by not trusting in him. Or you can allow the full and unmatched power of God to work through you as you trust him. It's your choice. And that brings me to my final point. In Proverbs 3, verses 5 and 6, we're told, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not unto your own understanding. In all your ways submit to him and he will make your path straight. 
this is God's ultimate desire for you to trust him with all your heart and you can do that because he's perfect he has a perfect love for you he has perfect wisdom to impart to you he is perfectly faithful to you and he is perfectly good holy righteous and just and in him alone you will find perfect peace so whatever you're struggling with today be assured of this truth God will be and has always been perfectly loving and perfectly good and perfectly wise perfectly holy perfectly faithful perfectly righteous and perfectly just he is perfect peace and perfectly powerful he is Jehovah Jireh he is enough so you can trust him with every aspect of your life because he is perfectly trustworthy and he will never turn his back on you so the final question today is how can you not trust God to guide you through this life in a perfect way? close this with me too good to stop now the word that continually was communicated through the whole thing was perfection there's no flaw there's no error but he's given you more than enough to suffice belief and faith and trust in God now some of you this morning one of these areas may be broken in your life you know I believe he's powerful but I don't feel like he's just there might be a facet that you don't understand. You got to stand to your feet with us. We're going to get out of here. But oh, I want to give you a chance <laughs> to where maybe God pinpointed one of those areas in your life and said, I want to reveal myself in this facet today. Because we got to know whom the God we serve. He hasn't asked us to f follow blindly and unsure of who he is. But maybe there's one of these areas that you say, Pastor Noe and this morning, Pastor Robert, there's one of these that I need to trust God in. If there's one of them that specifically spoke to you, I want you to move your feet right now, come forward, and I believe that God is going to reveal that area in your life. Right now. If there's one of those, you say, you know what, man, I really have trouble with this one. That I believe he's just going to enlighten you right now and he's going to show you that facet of his goodness, of his perfection, of who he is. All right, I guess all the rest of you got to figure it out. <laughs> Father, we thank you for who you are. Lord, we thank you that it's so not about us. 
We don't have to be perfect because you're perfect. And in that perfection, all of these things make sense and work because it's in and through you. It's all about who you are. We're gonna sing through this chorus and this bridge, just understanding the good, good father that we serve. Father, we thank you that you are perfect. Father, we've heard who your word has said you are. Now, Father, help us to live that out and be mindful of that and reminded of that. The moment we're powerless, that we're mindful that you're full of power. When we don't feel loved, <laughs> that you are perfect in love. Father, ultimately, we're only going to find satisfaction in and through you. So, Father, help us start there. Father, for each one this morning, Lord, I bless them. I ask that there would be wisdom and revelation of who you are in their life. 
Father, we're all broken, fractured people in need of a Savior. But God, you didn't hold anything back. But you did a completed work. And you are continually revealing more and more who you are to us. Father, and after everything that we've heard, maybe even something we've learned this morning, that we could place our trust in you. Father, as we go from this place, that you'd go with us. That our dependence, our faith, our focus, our eyes would be fixed on you. Father, let us be people of faith, not people of fear. That we would trust in you. Even when it doesn't look good, that we would trust in you. Father, we just counted a privilege to get to know you more and more. Father, help us to continually grow in knowing who you are. Father, and even change the way we think. Maybe the things that we've thought about you that are incorrect. Father, we love you. We just close by saying, I trust you, God. Some of those words are more significant to some in the room than others. Say one more time, I trust you, God. some of you there's that hesitancy oh I think so say one more time I trust you God in every season in every moment with every breath with all that I am till the day that I die if I live or if I die you know that's the worst thing that could happen lest I die but yet my trust is in the Lord oh man what a shame I get to go be with Jesus for those who know Christ. But pastor, no, I mean, I understand. We think life is so valuable and treasured. But Paul said, count it all joy if to leave this body and to be before the Savior. But right now we're here on earth. We got something to do. We got work to do. We got people that need to know about Jesus. We are the hands and feet of Christ. We are the hands and feet of Christ. We know who God is. God's not lacking. Did you get that this morning? He's not lacking. That's the source that we tap into to accomplish everything we need to accomplish in this lifetime. Amen? You guys be blessed. Go do something with this word, okay? Don't just say, man, that was good. Throw your bulletin in the trash and come back next week. Do something with his word. And then we'll see you guys next week, all right? Y'all be blessed. If we can do anything for you, let us know. Give his brother a hand. He did a great job. Thank you for joining us for the Harvest Time Church podcast. We hope you've been encouraged and empowered. If you'd like more information about our family, please write us at 42 FM 2540 South, Bay City, Texas 77414. Or check us out on the web at harvesttimebaycity.com.